Well, good morning, everyone. Today is the first Sunday I will be serving as your new pastor. And I just feel that it's an honor and privilege to be serving this congregation. You're a great bunch of people. As we go through the scriptures on Sunday, we're going to go through verse by verse. I just want you to fall in love with God's word. As we go through the Gospel of Luke, I want you to meditate on all the details that Dr. Luke gives us. As we complete the book of Luke, we may not go into it for another few years, depending on where we are in the Bible. And I also want you to be patient with me. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm going to let you down. I'm going to take a while to fit into the role that God has, has put me in. I just need a lot of your prayers. I need you to just commit to praying for me. And I just want to thank you for that. Okay, about the book of Luke. The book was written around 60 A.D. Luke was the beloved physician. Colossians 4.14 tells us that. He, uh, he basically was Paul's traveling companion. Philemon 1.24 tells us that. And he was a Gentile convert. Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts as a two-volume work. Luke was a bio of Christ and the good news of salvation. And Acts picks up with the resurrection and subsequent ascension and the history of the early church. Tradition tells us that Luke was from Syrian Antioch, remained unmarried, and died at the age of 84 years old. A note on the Gospels. God used four different men of four different backgrounds to, to give forth his word, the good news of salvation. And actually, they have um, each Gospel has a symbol to it. Matthew's symbol is the lion. The lion represents strength and royal authority. It has the most Old Testament references. The audience was primarily a Jewish audience to prove the messiahship of Jesus Christ. Book of Mark, the symbol is a bull. It symbolizes service and power. His gospel is, is concise and to the point. This was an appealing to the Roman mind. Luke, the symbol for Luke, was the man, wisdom and character. There's a lot of details, chronological order, and the prove-it-to-me nature appealed to the philosophical Greek mind. And John's gospel, the symbol is the eagle, which had a universal representation of deity. If you want to prove that Jesus is really God, meditate on the book of John. So you have four, four people telling the same story, but they mildly diverge in uh, subtle nuances of, of things that they observe from their perspective. Now, some people have a problem with this. I have a friend who's not saved, and we had an email thing back and forth, and he had a problem because the Gospels weren't carbon copies of each other. Well, let's switch gears here and look into our jurisprudence system. When the police arrive at a scene, whether it's an accident or a crime scene, they have to tend to the injured, they have to secure the scene, but as soon as that's done, they immediately have to separate witnesses. Why? Because it's human nature for all of us to see things, albeit the same event, with, with a little bit of a different perspective. So that's what has to happen. I'll just give you a quick example. A few months ago, there was a motor vehicle accident on Route 130 and Dean's Road Hole Road. Route 130 is two lanes going in north and south, and Dean's Road Hole Road is basically a country road that intersects the intersection. Well, there was a man who was driving in the left lane uh, going south, in a green light, he just, well, he's lost, so he decides he's going to stop in the highway. Not a good thing to do. So he stops, and uh, he has a witness behind him. He sees what happens. The witness swerves out of the way, 
the woman behind the witness rear ends the guy in the intersection. Now, from the witness's perspective, he could tell you which lane it was in because he was right behind him. Yes, it was definitely in the left lane. Now, I had two other witnesses, two young ladies in a vehicle who were stopped at the red light, perpendicular to what was going on, watching everything that was happening. They saw the man stop, and then they saw him back up. Actually, one of the statements from the girls was, oh, my God, he's backing up. What is he doing? So even a, a foot or two backing up or a few feet, they could see that because they were perpendicular. They couldn't tell me if he was in the left lane or the right lane because of their perspective, but they could tell me he was definitely backing up. The witness couldn't tell me, for the most part, whether he was backing up or not, but he could tell me it was in the left lane. So you have 95% the same story, the same accident, the same people involved, but different perspectives based on the witnesses. That's just human nature. So this, this, the synoptic gospel problem has been solved in three minutes with a motor vehicle accident. <laughs> so there really is no problem at all. It's just common sense. Okay, now we're going to get into the text. Chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which are most surely believed among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke's opening statement you can learn a lot from. He speaks to a guy, he's writing to a man called Most Excellent Theophilus. What can we learn from this? Most Excellent was a, a, a title of high ranking in the, in the Roman government. So if you address somebody with that title, he somehow worked his way up into the Roman government. And Theophilus basically was a Greek name. He was probably a Greek or a partial Greek. And Theophilus, if you break it down, Theos, God, and Philus, to love, one who loves God. So he's writing to this man, and this is basically like the intro section. If you, if you open up a book, there's an introduction that tells you the precipitation of the events that led to the writing of the book. So this is where Luke is at. Luke tells us that he knows that other people have recorded the way of salvation, but he feels led, and we know his leading, of course, is through the Holy Spirit. He feels led also to write, but he wants to write a orderly account, it's a chronological work, and it's a detailed account. More of a historical than an eyewitness account. Uh, Theophilus, he could have been a, an aristocrat that was converted to Christ, and in a sense he could have provided the financial backing for Paul, a publisher in a sense, who knows his motives, maybe he wanted to reach people on his echelon, the higher echelon, the thinkers in society. Uh, we don't know, it's all speculative. Verses 5 through 10. There was in the days of Herod, the king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinance of the Lord blameless. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people was praying outside at the hour of incense. So we see that Luke uses a lot of qualifiers in his work. Names, dates, times, places, titles. Luke used a lot of qualifiers to really help us to understand what's going on, 
who's in charge. And these qualifiers can be easily verified by extra-biblical records. As a matter of fact, there's many people who wrote a book or set out to write a book to disprove Christ, and they, in, in their research, they actually found out that they proved Christ was real, and they actually wrote a book stating the reality of Christ and, you know, why we should believe in it. So it actually, they, they turned around by doing their homework. You know, we don't believe in fairy tales. We don't put our faith in fairy tales. This is a thinking man's faith. Uh, if you were here Wednesday night when we did the story of Jonah, we spoke about the great fish. Now, that original word could either mean great fish or it could mean sea monster. That's how the word is translated. So you basically have a situation where there's a pool, pardon the pun, a pool of sea creatures that you could choose from and a man could actually fit into the sea creatures. We spoke about certain whales, certain sea creatures that could hold a man comfortably and also because some of them breathe air, there would be air pockets in there. Now, of course, God could have done a miracle, but this also could have happened in the natural world. It's not a fairy tale. But Herod, first person we see is Herod. Herod, Herod this is Herod the Great. Herod was a family name. He's a provincial ruler in the Roman times. We're going to run into a lot of Herods. Herod the Great, Herod Archelaus, Herod Agrippa, a bunch, a bunch of Herods through the Bible. And right away, we also introduced the two historical figures, Zacharias and Elizabeth. And when we get to know them from the story, we find they're an older couple, they're righteous, they're servants of God, and she's barren. She can't have any children. Who does that make you think of in the Old Testament? Sarah, Abraham and Sarah, right. And we also see that they're both of respectable lineage. They come from a priestly bloodline. And it was Zacharias' turn to burn the perpetual incense in the holy place of the temple. You had the holy place, which was a larger portion, and you had the, the most holy place, where the priest went in once a year to sprinkle the blood over the mercy seat. But the holy place had several pieces of furniture, and one of them was the table to have the incense burned on. And this was, um, it was Zacharias' turn to burn that incense. And Exodus 30 gives details of that. And in verse 10, we see that there was a multitude of people praying outside. The people wanted to be a part of the religious services. And you know what? God wants us to be part of religious services. He wants us to enjoy fellowshipping with him. He wants us to enjoy serving him. That's what he's always set out to do. If you look at Passover, read, you know, the Old Testament really helps us understand the New Testament, the prophecies of Christ, the, the explanations of what was going on in the New Testament. Passover was a feast. Pentecost was a feast. Tabernacles was a feast, and so on. God wanted his people to have joy when they worshipped and served him. And food doesn't hurt also. Food kind of came into the mix there. And even communion, which we're going to do today, is designed to remember Christ, but at the same time, fellowship with each other. Who knows what it's going to be like in heaven, but, you know, people, we talk in the hallway, hey, we've got to get together for dinner. How many times have you said that to somebody? Oh, yeah, call me. We'll put it on the calendar. And you have to have a calendar. You can't have 100 people at your house every day. So to fellowship with each other, it's, it's little pieces at a time. We have to work. We have to sleep. We have to do things we don't want to do. But we want to fellowship with each other. So to me, in heaven, there's a picture of somehow we'll be able to fellowship with each other all at the same time, forever. And the bonus is we have Jesus. And, of course, there's food, the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's very important. So I mean, we're even thinking about, uh, we're discussing having food here at least once a month at the end of service. It's great because people stick around and they fellowship with each other. 
Now, this time we're going to have more food because the last time I didn't get any. It was all gone. So we're going to have to have more this time. But it did make me happy to see people smiling, laughing, talking, and eating. As long as we follow some simple rules of childhood etiquette, like say it, don't spray it, don't talk with your mouth full, we'll be in good shape. We don't want people from the visitors thinking we're barbarians or anything. Okay. Verses 11 through 17. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Zacharias is serving the Lord. He's in the temple and he gets the the visit from from the angel Gabriel. Now, Zechariah is startled and fearful, but who wouldn't be? If you look at the Bible, an angelic visit could signify judgment and death, so he had good reason to feel that way. But Gabriel allays his concerns and gives him the good news of answered prayer, that he and his wife are going to have a son, and that step boy, John, is going to grow up to be uh, the prophet John, John the Baptist. What's very interesting is that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Because in the Old Testament, we understand that the Holy Spirit would come and go and, and fill people and lead them to do things that God had wanted them to do. But they didn't have the Spirit continually. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 51, David says, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Now, that would be unusual for us to say because we just know, we're taught, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit lives with inside of us. But John is special here. Remember Jesus said, of those born of women... The most important prophet, the most important is John the Baptist, the prophet. So he's the most important prophet. Now, that in itself gives us the importance of who Jesus is, because his job was to pave the way for Jesus, for the Messiah. So the fact that John was important shows us even how much more important Christ was. And also, uh, we see that John was probably a Nazarite. He probably took a Nazarite vow. And that's covered in Numbers 6. It tells you all about what a Nazarite vow is. It's basically basically an oath to abstain from worldly influences and to consecrate oneself unto God. There's a few kind of rules, if you will, things that they would follow, guidelines. And it was to abstain from intoxicating drink and great products, to refuse to cut the hair, no contact with the dead, and to eat only clean foods. We do find out later that John ate a diet of wild honey and locusts. Mmm. And locusts are a clean insect, so you could eat them. Leviticus 11. Now, I actually, I actually try to eat better, and I tried the wild honey. It's kind of like a thing of wax. It's not bad, but I think I'm going to skip the locusts. <laughs> well, maybe fried locusts and dipped in honey. No, let's move on. Verse 16 through 17. What you have here is John the Baptist's job description. And this is what he's to do. He's to focus the people back to God. Prior to John, there was no prophet for 400 years. So it was... No, no prophecies for 400 years. 
and John had his work cut out for him. Uh, also, John was to accomplish this in the power and spirit of Elijah the prophet. Now, I'm going to read Malachi 4, 5, and 6. You don't have to turn there, just to kind of cover that. Malachi says this, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the earth with a curse. So now Malachi made these prophecies many years after Elijah had died. So what is he talking about? Well, it's revealed to us in Luke's gospel. He was to come in the power and spirit of Elijah. There's a lot of similarities when you read the scripture between John the Baptist and when you read about Elijah in the Old Testament. And also his job was to attenuate the animosity and quarreling within the people. There was a lot of divisions and sects within the people. Even the religious system had become divisive. You had, at the time, you had your your main groups was the Essenes. The Essenes were like monks. They cloistered themselves. They, They hid from society. You had your Pharisees and Sadducees, which we're going to be introduced to, which were the aristocratic uh, religious leaders. And they basically, uh, they, they were part of the Sanhedrin, and they also disagreed about some major doctrinal issues, like the afterlife angels and things like that, resurrection. And then you have the Zealots. These people were going to take Rome by force. They were going to force the, God's kingdom in by bloodshed. That was their job. Uh, so you have a lot of divisions. You know, John's got his work cut out for him. And all this was designed to pave the way for Jesus. I'm going to read verses 18 through 25. It says, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is well advanced in years. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God, and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not be able to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. But when he came out, he could not speak to them, and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. So it was, as soon as the days of his service was complete, that he departed to his own house. Now after those days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and she hid herself five months, saying, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among men. So who knows how long Zechariah and Elizabeth were praying for a child. It probably was a long time because they were old, the Bible says. They could have started in their 20s trying to conceive. And they're praying and praying and praying. And nothing's happening. All throughout their 30s. And they're praying and praying in 40s and 50s. I don't know what's old here, but, you know. Uh, basically, they probably were praying for decades that, that they would con- she would conceive. So from their perspective, the, the pregnancy was either too late or it was unbelievable. But it was right on time for God. Remember, John the Baptist didn't come too early and he didn't come too late. It was just right. It was perfect timing so that he could pave the way for Jesus. Did you ever question the timing of something in your life, good or bad? How about a trial? Well, those, there's never a good time for a trial. And we, we would want to put it on the calendar. All right, God, yeah, let's give it maybe three years and make it happen in the winter because I'm depressed in the winter anyway. You know, it's not for us to choose when the trials come and go. It's not for us to decide when we could handle them. 
Because if that was the case, then God wouldn't be in it. We would just be able to handle it by our own means, and we wouldn't need the Lord. So trials, in, in our understanding, really don't come at a good time, but they're always right on time. What about a blessing? It's a blessing for me to be here and pastor this church. I thought, Zechariah thought his blessing came too late. I thought mine came too soon. No, no, Lord, you don't understand. <laughs> I can't do this. I can't. And his, his words to me were, exactly, you can't do it. He reminded me of Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And, of course, my wife echoed that, those sentiments, so I had nobody in my corner for this one. <laughs> so here I am. But we may not understand it. We may not see what's going on at the time. But we have to realize that God's, God's perfect timing is perfect. He's right on time. Okay, Zechariah is looking at his circumstances physically and he's having doubt. In verse 19, Gabriel makes it clear for Zacharias. I stand, Gabriel's saying this, I stand in the presence of God and he sent me to you to give you this message. Now you talk about credentials. Now how you check people's credentials? <laughs> Gabriel, he stands in the presence of God. Just imagine that. So, and Zacharias is a good God-fearing man, but he's questioning if God is going to make good on his promises. Let me repeat that. Zacharias is a good God-fearing man, and he's questioning if God is going to make good on his promises. That doesn't happen in the church, does it? Nah. Of course it does. Doubt. Did you ever pray for something incredible to happen in your life? And then it happens, and your reaction is you're stunned, like a deer in headlights? Well, it, I can't believe it. God, God did that. Yeah, but you were praying for it, right? Yeah, but it's, it's, this is big. You know, It's like we forget who we're serving. We can't believe it. Sometimes we're so caught up in serving. Look at Zacharias. That was his job. His job was to serve the Lord. Sometimes we're so caught up in, in serving or doing the Christian social thing that we forget who we really serve. We lose sight of it. The interesting is, it's not H-O-W we serve, but it's W-H-O we serve. We get a little dyslexic. It's not how we serve, but it's who we serve. And once we lose sight of that, it, there's a problem there. It starts to affect your whole judgment. But in verse 20, Zachariah is punished for his unbelief. Unbelief is, and this is scriptural, unbelief, well, hopefully everything I say is scriptural, but... <laughs> You can hold me to that one. <laughs> Why did I say that? <laughs> Unbelief is offensive to God when it comes from his people. And it's even worse, especially for those in ministry. Why do I believe this? Because if we look further in the story, the angel comes to Mary. And she's a little startled, too. And he kind of makes her feel better. Says so that she's going to have a baby, too. And she says, but how can this be? I don't know a man. And you, don't, she did, you didn't see Mary getting struck mute. So I believe that, well, again, scriptural, James 3.1, those in ministry are held to a higher standard. Zacharias should have known better, right? It's like if I didn't have, um, you know, held to a higher standard, I think as my job as a police officer, they always say, you know, they expect us to be perfect. We have to make a judgment, a snap decision, and then it takes hours for them to, after this thing is over and they, we're in court, to, to question us. Well, what did you think of this? Well, what did you think of that? Well, the guy was pointing a gun at me. I didn't really have time to think. But you, you put a big bullseye on your chest as a police officer. And, you know, when you, when you take it to the next level and you step it up in ministry, you also put a bullseye on yourself. But it's a spiritual thing. It's the forces of evil are against you. 
They do everything they can to take you down. But you, and you're also held to a higher standard. In verse 24 and 25, we see Elizabeth's reaction to the news of the pregnancy. Number one, she hides herself, probably from the spectacle of people. And the second thing she does is comment that God took away her reproach among men. Reproach, excuse me. In that culture, barrenness was a reproach, and it was considered even a curse from God. But this point is crucial. Here's a couple. They're elderly. They're righteous. They're servants of God. They should have been examples to everyone in the, in the community. They should have looked at these people as examples. And honestly, I believe if the community was 100% supportive of her, the religious community, I don't think she would have said this. Why is this in the scripture? Was she being built up or were some people tearing her down? Unfortunately, it's a lot easier in our society to tear somebody down to build them up. Look at the, uh, look at the elections. <laughs> They all stand on their podiums and they all sling at each other and this one blindsides this guy and they're all saying bad things about each other. Did you ever see an election where people said, expressed the goodness of the other, other character? No, it doesn't happen. Look at the news. It's like they, they take pleasure in taking everything out of proportion because it's sensationalism. So in our society, it's so much easier to tear down than to build up. Even look at a home. A small ranch could be knocked down with a bulldozer in a matter of a few hours. Now clean up the rubble. Clean up all the garbage. Put it in the dumpsters. Start rebuilding that foundation block by block by block. Wait for the concrete to dry. Frame the house. Side the house. Plumb it. Put electricity in it. Insulate it. Sheetrock. <laughs> Paneling. Taping. Spackling. Decorating. I have to say that because my wife's sitting there. You've got to decorate the house. Uh, put shingles on it. Roof it. That, t that could take months or a year. It could take literally a hundred times more time to build up a home than to tear it down. And that's what happens, too, uh, when people tear each other down. Paul uses a term called backbiting. I know I'm going off on a little bit of a tangent, but it, it is worth noting. Gossip and slander is, is a term used. Backbiting is a term used for that. I just want to go into a few things about that. These are quick verses from Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, so I'm just going to read them. You don't have to turn there. Proverbs 16.28 says this. A perverse man sows strife, and a whisperer separates the best of friends. Proverbs 17.5. He who mocks the poor reproaches his maker, and he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. Some people are just happy to see other people fall. It brings them joy. Proverbs 17.9 says... He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates the best of friends. Some people feel that their trust has been broken. They've been hurt by other people when they confide in them about personal things. And then when that person goes and tells those things, it separates the best of friends. That trust may not ever be built back up. Proverbs 21:23 says, Whoever guards his mouth and tongue keeps his soul from trouble. Proverbs 24:17 says, Do not rejoice when your enemy falls, and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Lest the Lord see it, and it displease him, and he turn away his wrath from him. That is really interesting. That's like if the Lord is ready to punish somebody. It's, he has to do that. He has to correct them. It's almost like you can get in the way of the spanking and get caught up in it and, and lessen it for that person who's going to be punished if you're glad and you rejoice at that person's calamity. Proverbs 24.7. Proverbs 24.17. I just did that, didn't I? 
lost my place here. Proverbs 26.20 says, Where there is no wood, the fire goes out. And when there is no talebearer, strife ceases. So when the supply is removed, when the person, uh, when there's no talebearer, strife ceases. It's like the su- supply and demand equation in economics. And then Ecclesiastes from the other side, 721 through 22. It says, also do not take heart to everything people say, lest you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. That's pretty amazing. Does the Bible know human nature or what? We get so indignant when we found, find out that somebody talked about us. Oh, I can't believe that person said that about me. Tarnished my character. But he's saying, don't make a big deal about it. You know, at some point in your life, you've done it to somebody else. So don't, don't make a big deal about it. So there's a, there's a few scriptures here, and uh, basically it encompasses backbiting. But is that word backbiting kind of odd to you? I, I have no doubt in my mind that that word is supposed to be here. And actually, I didn't understand the biblical principle about backbiting until I saw one of those nature shows on TV. Well, let me explain. I saw a special on lions and how lions fight. When lions attack their prey, they go, for the, they go underneath and they go for the jugular and they take them down. And it's, they bleed out and it's, it's kind of humane, I guess. They don't suffer. But when lions fight each other, it's a whole different thing. Lions will square off shoulder to shoulder. They'll bare their teeth. They'll use their, their claws to scratch at each other. But the, the lion who actually ends up winning, his job is to actually get past the shoulder of the other lion and take his teeth and sink it into the lion's spine. If you ever watch those shows, they're all muscle, these lions. But as they walk, if, you, if it's an aerial view, you can see their vertebrae moving. That part is vulnerable to, vulnerable to the lion. And instinctively, the one lion knows to kill the other one, he's got to mount the lion's shoulder, take his jaws, dig it into the spine, and clamp down really hard, which causes paralysis and then death. So do I know that this was what Paul was referring to, or the translators when they spoke about backbiting? No, but it certainly fits. And in the Roman world, lions were, were not under control. This isn't the only place in the New Testament that the Bible speaks about roaring lions. So I really believe that that's appropriate. It's to paralyze and kill the other lion. And sometimes people try to paralyze and kill another's reputation. And that's not our job. Whether it's a righteous person or somebody who's done wrong, it isn't our job to bury them. It's not our job. Sometimes we think it is. You know, Jude 1.9, when Michael is debating with Satan about the body of Moses, Michael doesn't revile Satan. He just says, the Lord rebuke you. He doesn't even assassinate Satan's character. Something interesting to think about. But, you know, gossip is wrong. And look, this doesn't just go for the here and now. It doesn't go just for this fellowship. It goes for everybody's fellowship. It goes for all Christians in general. It goes for me. It goes for people in leadership because we're held to a higher standard. We can never in leadership use gossip, a cloak of leadership for gossip and say, well, I had to do that. You can't do that. So anyway, um, now on the less serious note, you know, we're all equal at the foot of the cross. We're all equal here. We're all laboring in God's field together. You know, if, if you guys asked me, I would come to anybody's house for dinner. I mean, <laughs> did, did that sound like a, a backhanded way to get free meals? <laughs> you know, there's an old policeman saying, that I was taught as a rookie, and it goes, if it's for free, it's for me. <laughs> Actually, I told a, a really good friend of mine who's a pastor that saying, he goes, 
We use that, too. (laughs) But in closing, the point of the story is that it wasn't apparent to Zacharias and Elizabeth at the time, but God was, was right on time. And many years later, when John grew up and Jesus grew up and they started their ministries, then it was apparent. Oh, that's what it was all about. It wasn't apparent to Mary and Martha when their brother was in the tomb and he was dead and he was rotting. It wasn't apparent to them what was going on. But God was right on time. When it became apparent was when Jesus called Lazarus forth from the tomb and he rose from the dead. And that was to glorify God. Then it became apparent that God was right on time. It's not always going to be apparent to us in our situations. And I see that firsthand a lot of times. But I can assure you that God is always right on time.